Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT Will it get harder to get a credit card? And if it did, would that be such a bad thing? Buy-to-let is booming again, but will future returns live up to past ones? And how to make money from our love affair with animals? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford, Adam Palin, and a special studio guest, Jane Tully of Money Advice Trust. Let's start with an amazing statistic. Britons own 70% of all the credit cards issued across the whole of Europe. We spend £150 billion using them every year. For many of us, credit cards are a convenient way to spread spending, enjoy extra consumer protection and earn rewards. But for far too many of us, credit cards are an expensive financial millstone. Fresh from beating up the payday lending industry, the Financial Conduct Authority is now turning its attention to the credit card market, which it says does not always work in consumers' best interests. The regulator is particularly concerned about the complexity of credit cards, the fairness and transparency of their terms and conditions, and whether it is easy enough to switch to providers. The FCA also plans to look into the ways in which cards are marketed, amid fears that consumers are browbeaten into taking them by continual mail shots telling them they've been pre-approved. So what sort of a credit card market does the FCA want? And is it going to happen? Well, let's ask Jane Tully, who is Head of Insight and Engagement at the Money Advice Trust. Jane, first of all, back to that amazing statistic that we own nearly all three quarters of all credit cards in Europe. Why do we have so many? How did we get to the point we're at now? I think you're right. That 70% statistic is quite fascinating. And I guess one of the things that we hope that the FCA review will do is look at the market and look at international comparisons to understand the regulatory framework in this country and also the operating environment comparative to other places to help us get to the bottom of some of that figure. But in terms of understanding why we have such a big credit industry here now, I think it's useful to go back to 1997 because it was from that point onward that we've seen a massive expansion of the credit market. 
So since then, the amount outstanding has been massively, um, massively in excess of the amount that's being paid back on a monthly basis. And at the same time, we've seen growth in the number of providers. So a shift from it just being the traditional banks providing products to new providers entering the market. And also between 2000 and 2010, um, I think we had 34 new entrants in total to the market. If you think about it, we have 200 credit cards in circulation now. So, so a massive expansion in the provision side of things. In terms of the number of cardholders as well, if you think about it, by 2013, we now have on average two cards held by each credit card holder. So a huge expansion there and helping us to kind of understand more of the reasons behind that is something that we hope will come out from, from this review. Do you think that's what the FCA is trying to achieve in, in a sense that it's saying that this market has just got too big uh, for its own good? A bit like uh, payday lending, where you're now seeing the number of providers contract very sharply. Well, the FCA took on responsibility for consumer credit regulation back in April. And since then, they looked at the high cost short term credit market. And we know that's been quite a high profile review. They also expressed at that time an interest in looking at the credit card market, because that is one of the largest areas of unsecure lending under their remit. If you think about it, 30 million consumers, 57 billion outstanding balances. It is certainly an area that the regulator needs to, to kind of understand all of the detail of in terms of the drivers for consumer behaviour, but also the incentives that, that firms would look at. You mentioned that 57 billion is sort of amount outstanding there. I mean, for how, how much of that is kind of problem debt where people really are struggling uh, every month and, and they're just rolling over balances and not really clearing any of them? Well, I think the problem debt arises when people um, rev- effectively revolve their, their credit payments from month to month. So instead of making the full payment at the end of each month, they roll that over, not just by one month, by, but, but by kind of several months. And then they're regularly making just the minimum payments on their bills. That's certainly a signpost to us that someone might be facing financial distress. At National Debt Line, we see this firsthand. So if we were to look at, at, at the kind of the profile of our callers, about 50% of them call us to do with their credit cards being in arrears. The interesting thing we've seen on that is a shift and a trend in that in recent years. So it was far greater. Back in 2007, we had seven in 10 people call us with concerns about credit card arrears. Now that's only five in 10. I think the interesting thing we're also seeing at the same time is an increase in in the number of concerns we have from people in, in terms of paying their household bills. And of course, you know, our concern then in relation to the credit market would be are people using their credit cards to get by from month to month. You mentioned that improvement since 2007. I mean, is that down to things that the industry has done? I mean, the UK Cards Association, in its response to the FCA probe, said that, uh, you know, they talk about their commitment to responsible lending and transparency. And they say they've made a lot of changes over the last five minutes to things like credit limits and and repricing of debt. Is that working? Are you seeing that having a positive effect? I mean, we certainly think that some of that is working. We work very closely with the UK Cards Association. And for example, we've assisted them with the wording of some of their letters about meeting those minimum payments. And we've also helped out on certain codes of practice. I think the industry has its own body and kind of organisation now to help establish what some of those minimum standards are. And it may be that some of the outcome from the FCA review is about improving some of that self-regulation within the industry. And finally, Jane, if the market does contract, will that penalise 
sensible users, those people who who use credit cards responsibly, pay off their outstanding balance in full every month, and generally find them sort of useful products. Is there a danger that we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater here? Well, we'd certainly hope not, because we know that credit cards are a really valuable tool for a huge number of consumers. And, you know, as we say, the market does work very well for many. So it helps people get through on that, you know, when your income isn't necessarily meeting your outgoings and just, just get through those kind of unexpected costs or unexpected payments that you have to make. Our real concern is for those people who perhaps are overborrowing on their credit cards or, or, or perhaps there are incentives there that, 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 that are encouraging them to do so. Thank you very much. That was Jane Tully, Head of Insight and Engagement at the Money Advice Trust. Still to come on the show, we spend a fortune on our pets, but is there money to be made from our often irrational devotion to animals? First, though, let's take a look at the investment story of the past decade, buy to let. It's about 18 years now since someone first hit upon the idea of creating mortgage products specifically aimed at allowing individuals to become landlords. Since then, a combination of easy credit and rising house prices has resulted in over a million landlords, many of whom regard their property or properties as an integral part of their retirement planning. The introduction of new pension freedoms next April is expected in some quarters to fuel another wave of interest in bricks and mortar as an investment. Returns in buy-to-let can come from the rental income or from a rise in a property's value, or some combination of both. But with the pace of house price appreciation now seeming to slow, will today's wannabe Rigsby's ever be able to match the stunning returns achieved by earlier investors? Will a future government cut back on the generous tax breaks extended to amateur landlords? Will new mortgage rules from Brussels or rising interest rates make financing more difficult? And is this very hands-on form of investment suitable for everyone? James Pickford has been looking into the rise of the amateur landlord. James, early investors uh, have done very, very well out of buy-to-let. We we interviewed Fergus and Judith Wilson uh, earlier this year who have, of course, made hundreds of millions uh, from their uh, empire of properties. But are we in danger here of sort of extrapolating recent um, success uh, out indefinitely and assuming that it will always be a a great deal? Well, very much so. I think what aspiring uh, investors in buy-to-let have to look at is, as you've already mentioned, there are two sides to this equation, uh, the capital value side and the rental side. And of course, the story of the past decade has been this extraordinary rise uh, in capital values, particularly London and the South East, uh, which played so well for the Wilsons, uh, who are based in Kent. That appears now to be flattening off. Even this week, we've had uh, figures from the BBA, which represents banks, showing that uh, the number of mortgages lent have fallen by 16% in the past year. And Halifax is now predicting house prices will rise by as little as 3%. It's said in the range of 3 to 5% um, next year, compared to uh, a peak of 10% in July. So these investors can't expect the kind of stellar returns from, from the property itself, just owning the property. And therefore, uh, they have to take a much closer look at uh, whether it will earn the kinds of rents that will not only allow them to to pay back their mortgages, but to cover maintenance and legal costs and, and all sorts of other costs 
and make a profit on top of that. Mm-hmm. And what's the outlook for rents? I mean, presumably it varies very much according to whereabouts in the country you are. Yes, um, rents have been rising and there are regional variations. At the moment, London, because its house prices are so high, the rental yields are, are not as good as elsewhere in the country, particularly East Midlands, the West Midlands, uh, in the region of uh, 6 or 7% uh, compared to 4% for London. But there are reasons to, to think that it's a good play um, in the long term because of population change. The population is rising and the shape of the workforce is changing in that we have an increasing number of graduates. Uh, young people tend to rent. And so over the long term, and bear in mind that the average buy-to-let investor does keep their house for um, 10 to 20 years, two to three market cycles, that they can have a reasonable chance of seeing demand for rents and rent r- rents rising over that period. And the new mortgage regulations that were introduced in April do not apply directly to buy-to-let mortgages, but they are still having an impact on the rental market, aren't they? Quite right. It's harder for people to buy a house now because uh, they have to pass tighter regulations on whether they can afford to pay back the mortgage. And that means that particularly young people or people on low incomes, it's much harder for them to to be able to buy a property and therefore it um, pushes them towards uh, renting. Now, the Labour Party has uh, has talked about uh, sort of rent controls of of some kind if it is elected uh, next May, but there's perhaps a more um, pertinent threat uh, coming from the direction of Brussels in the shape of the EU mortgage directive. Can you explain how that applies to buy-to-let London? Yes, so so the Brussels directive is all about whether regulators should protect those people who are not professional landlords, but perhaps maybe inherit a house, uh, but... The National Landlords Association and many lenders uh, I've spoken to say that it's very hard to draw a a firm distinction between professional landlords who might have a a dozen or more properties and those who who make a deliberate uh, move to keep uh, the house that they're living in and rent out another one. And actually, if this regulation, as interpreted by the Treasury, uh, forces those those people who, who have deliberately made that decision to be able to prove that they can afford to pay the mortgages on both their properties through their own income, not just through a typically interest-only buy-to-let mortgage that is paid for by the rent, then that will be a serious problem for an industry in which um, 78% of landlords only own one property. So it sounds like there are quite a few challenges on the horizon. Of course, interest rates may rise next year as well. Mm. On balance, do you think buy-to-let still stacks up as, as an investment option for people with the, the time and the money to do it? I think the message from uh, the industry people that I've spoken to this week uh, is that uh, it is still, um, <laughs> perhaps unsurprisingly, a good deal um, because of these demographic changes that you see. But uh, they are all very clear that you have to do your homework and um, you have to know where you're buying, who you intend to let to, um, how much of leeway you can take in terms of uh, voids, which are the times when people are, are, are not in the property and paying their rent, and you know, ultimately how much, uh, how much variance you can take on things like interest rates. Thanks very much, James. We take the temperature of the buy-to-let market in FT Money's cover feature this week. And of course, our databank pages always show you the latest mortgage deals for aspiring landlords.
FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. On to our final item for today. In 2008, Natalie Ellis appeared on the BBC Two show Dragon's Den looking for funding to commercialise a non-spilling dog bowl that allows your pooch to drink during a car journey. She was rejected by the Dragons, but her road refresher dog bowl went on to be a great success and her company now has annual sales of over £8 million. We'll be running an interview with Miss Ellis in a coming issue of FT Money, but the whole episode got us thinking about whether there's money to be made from our devotion to pets. After all, almost half of UK households own a pet. Estimates vary, but the Pet Food Manufacturers Association says we spend about £2 billion a year on food alone. On top of that comes vets' bills, fees for kennels and catteries, and of course all the pampering and treats, taking total pet spending to well over £5 billion every year. The pet industry is remarkably recession-proof too. During a five-year squeeze on wage growth, consumers have cut back on foreign holidays, meals out and other treats, but not, it seems, on their pets. Adam Palin, who is part owner of a fairly high-maintenance retriever, has been looking at this very issue. Adam, this is an area where there aren't really any uh, funds or collective uh, investment products available. So we're really talking about uh, investing in individual companies and, and, and possibly buying their shares. Are there any big players in the UK in the, in the pets department? Well, the, the obvious one is Pets at Home, the, uh, the supermarket for pet products, if not quite pets. They do have some reptiles and rabbits and, and fish floating around, but um, no doggies in the window. They do sell food, accessories, and listed this year. The shares are down about 15% since then, although to an extent that reflects a general downturn in retail. What's interesting about the company is that pets at home are moving into uh, services. Now that includes grooming and veterinary practice, which can be in store. The veterinary market is dominated by independents, but through the acquisition of Vets for Pets, in addition to its existing uh, number of in-store vets, it's looking to get around a 10% market share there. And what about the, the makers of, um, of food for pets? I gather this is a remarkably concentrated market. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Nestle are, in fact, the, the largest player. According to figures from the American Pet Products Association, they have market share of around 48% through their Purina brands. It actually accounted for around 15% of group operating profits in 2013. So it's a large part of the company, a very profitable part. But obviously, if you're buying into Nestle, then uh, you know it's as much into chocolate and cereals. The other main actor is Mars, who acquired Procter & Gamble's pet care business for around $3 billion this year, although they're a private company. And what about um, medicines for pets? I mean, my elderly cat uh, needs arthritis medicine, uh, which costs a fortune. I, c- I cannot believe that somebody somewhere isn't making uh, an absolute packet. Who's making money from pet medicine? <laughs> Lots of people. Uh, I think that every month when I, I, I get to apply the advocate to bell the retriever's head, that's made by Bayer, uh, the German pharma group. Sanofi, another big player. But obviously, if you're investing in those kind of companies... The human pharmaceutical part of their business is much larger, so there's no direct exposure. Now, Pfizer, the US pharmaceutical giant, they spun out their animal health group last year. It's called Zoetis. 
the shares have done remarkably well this year, up over a third, although, of course, it is US listed. So for UK investors, it, it, there is cost there, obviously. Yes, I mean, that, that applies to several of the companies you've mentioned there. Um, in the UK, mentioned pets at home, are there also smaller and more focused companies that, that, whose shares will be easier for UK investors to buy? There's one main listed company that comes up called Decra. They used to have a big distribution arm, but they, they got rid of that last year. Now they're purely uh, pharmaceutical. An area where they specialise is in endocrinology products for cats and dogs. Again, they've done really well. Uh, the last three years, their shares have doubled, and that's mainly due to this specialisation and also expansion into Europe and the US. And finally, if you don't want to um, sort of become a stock market investor and you don't want to buy shares in overseas companies, you could, I guess, do no worse than become a pet sitter. Uh, apparently, this is an enormous growth market. Well, so I'm told, uh, and, and on my dog walks, I do see a number of apparently self-employed or franchised dog walkers. Um, the extent to which they are verified and approved um, is, of course, debatable. Uh, it's self-regulated, but there's there's certainly one association, the National Association of Pet Sitters and Dog Walkers, who I spoke to. Now, they're 750 or so members. They have to be insured. They only walk their dogs in small groups and so forth. The idea being that that offers dog owners a, a degree of comfort that the dog's being well looked after. But for most people doing this, it, it's, a, it's a part-time job. Many are retired. But in some cities, I know in London, hourly rates can be around £20 a dog. But it's still very much in, in a nascent form. £20 an hour to walk a dog when we pay people in care homes the minimum wage. Something's gone wrong with Britain, I feel, but there's lots of money to be made from pets. Uh, thank you very much. And there's lots more about the amazingly profitable pet business in this weekend's FT Money. What else do we have? Well, my column takes a look at what might be in store in next week's autumn statement. Ken Fisher explains more fascinating correlations between US elections and stock markets. We look at commercial property funds, the latest changes to the rules governing how people can take their pensions. And we've also a story on how Terry Venable's nascent football fund has been showed a red card by regulators in the Caribbean. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, James, Adam and Jane Tully from Money Advice Trust. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.